Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. All right, my friends, thanks as always for tuning in, and I hope you're ready to learn some derm. Today, we'll be continuing through our papulosquamous reaction patterns by discussing annular papulosquamous disorders. There's a big differential for annular lesions, but we will focus on three of the more common annular conditions that tend to be scaly. Tinea, subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus, also known as SCLE, and erythema annularis centrifugum, also known as EAC. We'll focus most of our attention on the dermatophyte infections known as tinea, and then quickly go over the basics of SCLE and EAC. I suppose I'll teach you something, you fungating fungus. And per usual, we will start by summarizing our reaction patterns and throw in our disclaimer. This episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmstead Medical Center, or their affiliates. The five reaction patterns are papulosquamous, eczematous, vascular, dermal, and vesiculobullous disorders. Again, we divide the papulosquamous rashes into five subcategories. One, psoriasiform, which includes psoriasis, seborrheic dermatitis, mycosis fungoides, small and large plaque parapsoriasis, and pityriasis rubropilaris. Two, pityriasiform, which includes pityriasis rosea, secondary syphilis, and tinea versicolor. Three, lichenoid, which includes lichen planus and its many variants. Four, annular, including tinea, SCLE, and EAC that we'll discuss today, and 5, erythroderma, which we'll be covering in the next episode. Before we discuss the various forms of tinea, let's take a step back and discuss the very basics of the kingdom of fungi, some terminology, and where the dermatophytes and other fungi relevant to dermatology lie within that classification. Fungi can be classified as molds, yeast, and dimorphic fungi. Again, fungi can be classified as molds, yeast, and dimorphic fungi. Molds are filamentous fungi made of hyphae filaments that weave together and form mycelium. Well, it appears there's a fungus among us. Give me two examples of molds. How about opportunistic molds like aspergillus and the dermatophytes, which cause the tinea infections that we'll discuss in depth today? The next type of fungi are the yeasts, which are round, unicellular organisms that reproduce by budding. All right, bud. Give me three examples of yeast. How about Cryptococcus, Candida, and the yeast Malassezia furfur, which causes tinea versicolor and seborrheic dermatitis? Then the third group are the dimorphic fungi, which exist as molds outside the body at 25 degrees Celsius and as yeast in host tissue at 37 degrees Celsius. You can remember this with the mnemonic, mold in the cold, yeast in the beast. Ah, mold in the cold, yeast in the beast. These organisms I fear the least. Some conditions caused by dimorphic fungi include coccidioidomycosis, paracoccidioidomycosis, which is also known as South American blastomycosis, histoplasmosis, and regular blastomycosis, which is also known as North American blastomycosis. Next, let's spend some time on the superficial dermatophyte infections that we call tinea. 
What are the three main genres of molds that cause tinea? I'm sure your inguinal region is quite familiar with all three of them, you greasy crustacean. The answer is microsporum, epidermophyton, and trichophyton. Remember that tinea is the term that we use to describe these infections based off their location. Tinea is not a genus itself. It is a clinical term, not a laboratory or microbiological term. The prototype for these infections is tinea corporis, which is commonly called ringworm. Clinically, these patients present with expanding, erythematous, annular patches or plaques that classically have an inflamed or scaly leading border. Tinea may occasionally have small vesicles or pustules at that leading edge, too. Lesions are typically itchy and are usually acquired in three ways. One, direct contact with animals. Two, direct contact with other infected humans, as in tinea gladiatorum, which occurs when infected wrestlers are rubbing up on each other. And three, from fomites, such as that wrestling mat. I should mention I have nothing against wrestling, but many of my high school friends who wrestled were often sporting a ringworm infection at one point or another. When I was captain of the high school wrestling team, they used to call me Trichophyton. But I'm sure your generation had wrestling banned for too much physicality. No matter, I will beat you to the floor mentally. Let's play a game. I say the location of the body where the dermatophyte is growing, and you tell me the name of the disease, or at least attempt to. How about tinea in the scalp, eyebrows, or eyelashes? Tinea capitis. Bonus question, which organisms typically cause tinea capitis? Trichophyton tonsorans is the most common cause in the U.S., whereas microsporum canis is the most common cause worldwide. Bonus question number two, which one causes endothrix and which one causes ectothrix? Trichophyton tonsoran causes an endothrix. Endo meaning the infection is within the hair shaft, whereas microsporum canis is an ectothrix and infects the outside of the hair shaft. Fine, fine. What's the name for tinea of those godforsaken beards you're all growing now? Tinea barbae. Tinea of the face. Tinea facii. How about the torso? Tinea corporis. Tinea on the arms and legs. Also tinea corporis. Hmm, good. That always trips up the students whom I fail on my rotation. How about tinea in the groin? If you say jock itch, you also fail, along with your friend Hubert Hufflepuff. Tinea cruris. Okay, bonus question number three. A patient has a rash in the groin that looks like tinea cruris, but it also affects their scrotum. Is it tinea? Or is it an aberrant reaction to your scrotox injections? Not quite. It's likely Canada because tinea cruris spares the scrotum, whereas Canada does not. All right, all right. Enough of this scrotum talk. I want to enjoy my lunch. How about tinea on the feet, a.k.a. athlete's foot? Tinea pedis. And what about tinea in the nails? How about tinea unguium or onychomycosis? Okay, what do you call the infection when tinea affects the hair follicles outside the scalp? Mayaki granuloma, spelled M-A-J-O-C-C-H-I granuloma. 
All right, I suppose that'll do for now. Thank you for the spelling lesson. So how do you diagnose and treat these tinea infections? Let's pretend you have a high school wrestler who comes to clinic with an erythematous, scaly, annular lesion on his chest. Oh, hey man, doctor, man, my grandma says I have emphysema, eczema, whatever. Whatever it is, it itches to the max a sec, and I need something pronto. So what do you want to do? Step one, scrape it and do a KOH prep. Let's take a couple of minutes and go over how to do a KOH and what you're looking for. You typically take a 15 blade and scrape the scale of the lesion onto a glass slide. Then you place one drop of 20% KOH, Swartz, Lampkins, or Clorazole Black E fungal stain onto the slide and place a cover slip onto it. Next, you want to heat the slide gently with either a lighter or a hot plate to help the KOH, Swartz, Lampkins, or Clorazole stains dissolve the keratin on the slide. Then, you look at the slide under the microscope. So next, let's quickly go over some of the common KOH findings that will show up in clinic and on exams. The dermatophytes that cause tinea infections will show up as branching hyphae and mycelium, whereas candida infections will show yeast and pseudohyphae. So, what exactly is the difference between hyphae and pseudohyphae? Hyphae are long, branching filaments that are partitioned by septae without constrictions between the cells, whereas pseudohyphae are chains of budding cells that can look similar to hyphae, but instead they have constrictions between the cells that makes them look like sausage links. These pseudohyphae can end up being quite long as well. Then remember we can also use a KOH to diagnose tinea versicolor, which is caused by malassezia. Tinea versicolor scrapings will show the classic spaghetti and meatballs, with the spaghetti referring to hyphae, which are often shorter in length, and the meatballs referring to the spores. Alright, so let's get back to our patient. You better give me a reason you're torturing my patients. So on your KOH, you saw loads of branched hyphae consistent with tinea corporis, or more specifically, tinea gladiatorum for this patient. But let's pretend that it was negative and you want to do a biopsy. What would you be looking for? Sometimes tinea can show collections of neutrophils in the stratum corneum similar to psoriasis, but the main thing you're looking for are the hyphae in the stratum corneum, which can be highlighted with PAS stains. So you have your diagnosis. How do you get these patients better? For plain tinea corporis, there is a whole slew of topical antifungals that can be used, such as terbinafine, aka Lamisil, which inhibits squalene epoxidase that is used by the dermatophytes for cell membrane synthesis. Another commonly used topical is ketoconazole, which is an azole, which works by inhibiting 14-alpha-demethylase, which is involved in ergosterol synthesis for that same cell membrane. Some of the other topical treatments include other azoles such as clotrimazole, econazole, and oxyconazole, along with cycloprox, tolnaftate, and naftaphine, aka naftin. It is important not to confuse naftin with nystatin, since nystatin does not work for tinea infections, but is instead used for candida, which is a yeast and not a mold. Again, don't confuse the antifungal naftin with nystatin, since nystatin does not work for tinea, but is instead used for candida. When lesions are extensive, oral treatment can be done with terbinafine, aka lamisil, or oral azoles such as fluconazole, aka diflucan. Name two superficial dermatophyte infections that require oral therapy.
That would be tinea affecting the hair follicle, so you could answer tinea capitis, tinea facii, or Miyake's granuloma. It makes sense that systemic treatments are needed since topical treatments can't penetrate to the depth of the hair follicle in the deep dermis or superficial sub-Q. For kids with tinea capitis, it is often treated with micro-sized griseofulvin at 25 mg per kg daily or weight-based terbinafine for at least 8 weeks. For a couple more pearls on patient counseling for tinea in general, let's listen in to how Dr. G counsels his patients. All right, Connor, you've got athlete's foot and jock itch. Lucky you. I'm going to give you a cream to put on these areas once a day for a couple of weeks to clear this up. Put it on for an extra week after you think the rash is gone to make sure there's no survivors. But here's what you also have to remember. This fungus grows where it's warm and moist, so your sweaty feet and your sweaty crotch are like a paradise for these things. You gotta keep these areas dry. Antifungal powders from the pharmacy help. You also have to put your socks on before you put on your underpants. Otherwise, you're rubbing that fungus on your undies and dragging it up to your crotch. Do you understand? All right. Now get out of my office and tell your father to pay that copay at once. So that wraps up the first rash on our annular papulosquamous differential, the tinea infections. Next, we'll discuss subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus, also known as SCLE, before finishing up with erythema annularis centrifugum. I want to mention that, although SCLE isn't usually on the differential for tinea or EAC due to the arrangement of lesions, I wanted to be sure to discuss it in our papulosquamous podcast since it can also have an annular appearance. So let's talk lupus and SCLE. SCLE is one of the many types of cutaneous lupus, all of which can occur on their own or be associated with systemic lupus erythematosus. Some of the chronic forms of cutaneous lupus that are less likely to be associated with systemic lupus include discoid lupus, which is the most common type, hypertrophic lupus, lupus paniculitis, tumid lupus, and mucosal lupus. Again, some of the chronic forms of cutaneous lupus are discoid lupus, hypertrophic lupus, lupus paniculitis, tumid lupus, and mucosal lupus. Then there's subacute cutaneous lupus, which has a medium risk of SLE progression. And finally, you have acute cutaneous lupus, which is strongly associated with SLE and presents with the classic butterfly rash in the malar region and the photosensitive eruption. So let's talk subacute cutaneous lupus. Ah, autoimmune connective tissue disease, one of my favorites. What are the clinical manifestations of subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus? SCLE can present in two ways. One, papulosquamous SCLE, which mimics psoriasis but has a photodistribution. This photodistribution is a nice clue for SCLE since psoriasis is more likely to spare the photodistributed areas and can be treated with UVB. The second SCLE presentation is annular SCLE, which appears as polycyclic annular plaques that usually aren't scaly but typically occur on the sun-exposed areas of the face, neck, upper chest, and upper back. Although these rashes don't typically scar the skin, they can cause significant dispigmentation. For SCLE, I like to remember what I call the rule of 50s, which gives me a rough ballpark for remembering that around half of SCL patients have a positive ANA, 
Half will eventually meet the criteria for SLE, half of cases are photosensitive, and half of patients have positive DIF findings. Think of subacute lupus as straddling the fence between acute and chronic lupus. Therefore, it has this very rough 50% rule, with around half of SCLE patients having a positive ANA, half will eventually meet the criteria for SLE, half of cases are photosensitive, and half of patients have a positive DIF. So if you have a patient and you suspect SCLE, how do you make the diagnosis? Checking some labs can definitely be helpful. And what would you expect to see with those tests you love ordering? The classic antibodies for SCLE are anti-Rho, a.k.a. anti-SSA, and anti-LA, a.k.a. anti-SSB. Like I mentioned, ANAs are positive in around 50% up to 80% of these patients, and some SCLE patients may show a leukopenia on their CBC. Bonus question number four. Name three conditions that are associated with anti-Rho and anti-La antibodies. How about subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus, because we just talked about it, Sjogren's syndrome, because it's in the name of these SSA and SSB antibodies, and then neonatal lupus, which has positive anti-Rho SSA antibodies in around 99% of cases. Again, the three conditions with anti-Rho and LA antibodies are SCLE, Sjogren's syndrome, and neonatal lupus. All right, you diagnose subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus. What medications could be causing it, and what lab abnormality could help confirm it? As far as the lab goes, drug-induced SCLE will show anti-Rho antibodies in around 80% of cases. And this is different from the anti-histone antibodies that are positive in drug-induced SLE. I don't want to get too far on a tangent, but also remember that drug-induced SLE has a much different clinical presentation to drug-induced SCLE, with drug-induced systemic lupus more commonly having arthralgias and serositis and fewer cutaneous changes like the malar rash, while drug-induced SCLE is the opposite and almost always has cutaneous changes and has minimal systemic involvement. As far as the causative meds for drug-induced SCLE, I have another stupid acronym that helps me to remember drug-induced SCLE cases, and it's THANG, which stands for terbinafine, hydrochlorothiazide, ACE inhibitors, NSAIDs, and griseofulvin. Again, it ain't no THANG to remember drug-induced SCLE because it is caused by terbinafine, hydrochlorothiazide, ACE inhibitors, NSAIDs, and griseofulvin. That is the most preposterous thing I've ever heard. I'd rather you remember the fact that drug-induced subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus always affects the skin and usually does not have systemic manifestations. Okay, so let's quick go over the basic biopsy findings and treatments for SCLE before we move on to erythema annularis centrifugum. Biopsy of SCLE lesions will show a vacuolar interface, which means that there are degenerative changes at the dermoepidermal junction that look like little bubbles along with a prominent lymphocytic infiltrate. There may also be thickening of the basement membrane zone, mucin deposition, and perivascular and periadnexal lymphoid aggregates. Treatment for these patients will include antimalarials such as hydroxychloroquine, aka Plaquenil, 
sun protection, topical steroids, and stopping any medications that could be causing the rash. Okay, so we've gone over tinea and SCLE. Last stop for our annular papulosquamous rashes is erythema annularis centrifugum. So what is it? A lot of dermatologists think of it as a type of hypersensitivity rather than a distinct entity since it has a long, long list of possible triggers. I don't suppose you could name any of those triggers, could you? Think of infections, medications, foods, autoimmune conditions, and very rarely, cancers. Infections that can lead to EAC include the tinea infections that we discussed, along with a variety of bacterial, fungal, and viral infections such as upper respiratory infections. Because of the tinea association with EAC, always be sure to do a thorough exam to look for distant tinea of the toes, scalp, groin, etc. There is also a laundry list of medications that can cause erythema annularis centrifugum, including penicillins, plaquenil, cimetidine, hydrochlorothiazide, and amitriptyline. Some foods classically leading to EAC include blue cheese and tomatoes, so look out for those chopped salads. Autoimmune conditions associated with EAC include systemic lupus, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and pemphigus vulgaris, to name a few. And then besides these infections, medications, foods, and autoimmune conditions, some underlying malignancies that have been reported in association with EAC include a variety of leukemias, lymphomas, and solid organ malignancies such as breast, lung, GI, and prostate cancer. Okay, wise guy, what is the classic presentation of erythema annularis centrifugum? Well... EAC can occur at nearly any age, but it typically affects middle-aged adults. We divide it into superficial and deep variants, with superficial EAC presenting as single or multiple annular erythematous scaling plaques that are slow-growing, occasionally pruritic, and classically have a trailing scale. Again, EAC presents as single or multiple annular erythematous scaling plaques that are slow-growing, occasionally itchy, and classically have a trailing scale. This trailing scale refers to a scale that does not reach the leading erythematous edge of the lesion. Ah, trailing scale. If you were a scale, you would certainly be trailing behind academically. Can you think of another condition besides erythema annularis centrifugum with a trailing scale? How about pityriasis rosea, especially on the herald patch? Also, resolving pustules and furuncles give a peripheral scale, so take note if lesions are folliculocentric. So remember, if you see a trailing scale clinically, think of PR and EAC most often. While the superficial scaly variants of EAC are more relevant for our annular papulosquamous differential, keep in mind that there are deep variants of EAC that are more of a dermal process and therefore do not have scale on the lesions. So, how do we diagnose and treat EAC? Because these lesions have scale, you should always remember to scrape it for a KOH, which will obviously be negative. If you can't correlate the rash with one of these possible triggers and recommend avoidance of that trigger, a biopsy can be helpful. And what would we find on biopsy of erythema annularis centrifugum? Well, for one, it will not show hyphae with PAS staining, so it can be helpful to rule out tinea. For EAC, some of the features are nonspecific, such as parakeratosis and spongiosis. However, the classic finding that you will see is a coat sleeve infiltrate, which refers to densely packed lymphocytes around the blood vessels, which, 
when you have more of a longitudinal cut of one of these blood vessels will look like a blue diagonal coat sleeve. Again, for EAC biopsy findings, remember perikeratosis, which correlates with the scale, spongiosis, and then a coat sleeve perivascular infiltrate. As far as treatment for EAC, addressing underlying triggers like new medications or tinea is most helpful. Then there is a somewhat long list of treatments that have shown success, but always remember, whenever a condition like EAC or warts has a long list of treatments, it means that none of them are really that great. So for erythema annularis centrifugum, topical steroids are often tried but aren't usually that helpful, along with topical calcineurin inhibitors like tacrolimus or pomecrolimus, along with UV treatments. Alright my friends, that is a quick crash course on tinea, subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus, and erythema annularis centrifugum. Like I mentioned in the intro, the differential diagnosis for annular lesions can be quite large, so keep in mind that there are other annular conditions like granuloma annulari that we'll discuss in other podcasts. Since Dr. Grumpy Pants loves annular lesions so much, he wanted to sum things up for us. Alright you flaky little fungus, remember... That fungi can be classified as molds, yeasts, or dimorphic fungi. Tinea infections are caused by the three genera Mycosporum, Epidermophyton, and Trichophyton. Tinea capitis is on the scalp, eyebrows, or eyelashes. Tinea barbae affects those disgusting beards that your generation loves to lather in beard oil. Tinea fasciae affects the face. Tinea corporis is on the torso or extremities. Tinea crurus affects the groin. Yes, I'm talking about you. Tinea pedis is on the feet. And tinea unguium or onychomycosis affects the nails. KOH of these lesions will show eugestant dermatophytes which appear as branching hyphae and mycelium which contrasts to candida infections that show yeast and pseudohyphae. Biopsy can find the hyphae with a PAS stain. Once you have your diagnosis, topical antifungals like tibinafine, ketoconazole, clotrimazole, econazole, cyclopyrox, tonaftate, and naftaphine can be helpful. Resistant cases or cases affecting the hair follicle need systemic treatments like PO to benefine or azoles such as fluconazole. Subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus presents in two ways, papulosquamous or annular, and will classically show up on sun-exposed areas on the face, neck, upper chest, and upper back. For subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus, remember our rule of 50%, which helps us remember, except for you who cannot remember anything, that roughly half of subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus patients have a positive ANA. Half will eventually meet the criteria for systemic lupus erythematosus. Half of cases are photosensitive and half of patients have positive direct immunofluorescent findings. Laboratory examination may reveal anti-Rho and anti-La antibodies. Then you can remember that idiotic acronym THANG for drugs causing subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus, which includes tabinafine, hydrochlorothiazide, ACE inhibitors, 
NSAIDs, and Griseophoven. Biopsy of subacute cutaneous lupus erythematoses show a vacuola interface, thickening of the basement membrane, mucin deposition, and perivascular and periadenexal lymphoid aggregates. Treatment for these patients include Plaquenil, a favorite of mine, and it is served in the mint bowl in my office. Sun protection, topical steroids, and stopping any medications that might be causing the rash like it ain't no thing. And finally, let's sum up EAC with a corny little poem. I'll keep it short and sweet. EAC can present as superficial or deep. It's caused by viral, bacterial, or little tinea bugs, along with a long, long list of these silly new drugs. Don't forget to ask about those tomatoes and blue cheese, along with the biopsies that show that cuddly coat sleeve. So we hope you've learned something and that the knowledge will last, and thank you again for listening to the Gren Zone Podcast. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Gren Zone Podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.